Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Adam Simon. Uh, and we got a great episode this week in the main conversation. Uh, we're speaking with David Rosenthal, who's an investor and co-host of the Acquired FM podcast, all about the futures of startups. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to take a moment to remind everybody to give us a review uh, on Apple Podcasts of the show. Uh, it really only takes five minutes to leave a review. And again, it does really help the show grow and get us ranked uh, on the Apple Podcast charts. And if you're listening on, on Apple Podcasts right now, you can actually leave us a review while you listen. All you got to do is go to the Floor 9 show page within Apple Podcasts, scroll all the way down to the bottom until you reach the ratings and reviews section, click write a review. And then just, you know, give us a sentence or two why you love the show uh, and then click submit. So we greatly appreciate it. And thanks for uh, spreading the love on Apple Podcasts. Well, with that out of the way, Adam, shall we dive into the news of the week? Yes, let's do it. Fantastic. Well, uh, in the payment sector this week, we had some big news coming out of Google. Uh, so Google Pay gets a major redesign and will have an emphasis on personal finance. Uh, so it seems like all the big technology companies can't help themselves but to build some sort of technology or financial product uh, that helps people manage their money. Um, what are your thoughts on this, Adam? Is this a big you know, shift for Google? Is this just like a product iteration? Uh, what, what does that mean <laughs> for the landscape? Uh, I think that this is probably more of a shift than a... I mean, it is an iteration, right? The interesting thing here is that they're cramming a bunch of functionality into Google Pay such mm -hmm. that I feel like it's going to be renamed back to Google Wallet at some point um, <laughs> but because it pay, it's more than just payments. It does include peer-to-peer -peer payments, thus competing with things like Venmo. Uh, yep. It also includes um, being able to pay in store using NFC or QR codes. It also mm -hmm. includes coupons. Um, it, it also lets you connect your bank accounts and get sort of a searchable view of your finances. That actually seems like the really cool thing. If you if you remember Mint, uh, which I know yep. is still active, but um, I think their their usership has declined. Their, Google's basically pulling a Mint where you can connect all of your bank accounts and credit cards and, and sort of use Google search, which of course is going to be great to search all your yep. transactions across them and budgeting and stuff like that. That seems really cool. It'll also pull in your receipts from Gmail and make them searchable and tie them to transactions. Um, which is very cool. So like those features are cool. I don't know if it's enough to get people over the hump of using this as opposed to other things. Right. Um, but I think the the big pending announcement, which isn't happening now, it's going to happen sometime next year, of course, because uh, these things always... Uh, take a little time, but <laughs> Google is going to be partnering with some banks to um, offer uh, fully online checking and savings accounts inside of Google Pay as a service they're calling Plex. Yep. Um, so I, I think that that is that is sort of the the next shoe to drop after Apple launched Apple Card. I think there there had been a lot of speculation around these tech companies getting into into more traditional banking, uh, and Google's doing it. They they're going to do it next year. So I think if those accounts are really attractive, that would be a way to get people using the rest of the services inside this app. Absolutely. And it seems like today you don't need a physical location uh, for consumers to have trust in your service to protect their money uh, and manage their finances. Um, to me, this looks like it's just going to really open up access to the whole underbanked population. Again, I don't think we know exactly what the requirements are going to be to open a checking account, but uh, it's coming in very accessible. Essentially, there are no overdraft fees, no minimums to get started. So it's a to me, it seems like it's, it's going to be a very accessible banking service for maybe individuals that couldn't have get, gotten banking services yeah. previously. 
Yeah, and I think that that's probably a good angle. My question is, will it appeal to people who already do have bank accounts? Um, I think that mm-hmm. will be sort of the big question and, and the big thing that will determine if this has an impact on the broader market. And, you know, most of the consumers that our brands are targeting do have bank accounts. So I think that'll that'll determine how wide of an impact this has going forward. But in other payment news, CVS has become the first national retailer to offer support for PayPal and Venmo QR codes at checkout. Um, So again, I think this is just something that CVS is doing to adapt to the current times, looking to uh, provide more optionality to those that shop at their stores from a contactless uh, checkout experience, um, which I think is pretty great. And we know Venmo is a very big, you know, peer-to-peer payment uh, provider, uh, just being integrated with PayPal and all that. So yeah, and PayPal has, you know, despite PayPal being a, a sort of older generation tech company and you know we think of venmo as the hot new product that they acquired uh, and yep. paypal has a lot of adherence uh, honestly when we look at um at at research around how people prefer to pay for for things online pay- people a large segment of people still trust paypal and still prefer to use paypal over other payment methods um so i think that this is you know, keeping up with the times. It's like, look, if you should be allow, if you're a retailer, you should be allowing people to pay with as many forms of yep. pay, any way that they want to. Um, and I think, you know, let's see, let's let's check back in on this next year and see uh, if PayPal and Venmo are really growing their at uh, checkout uh, usage of their products. Absolutely. In other news. Amazon has launched Amazon Pharmacy, a delivery service for prescription uh, medications. I think we all saw this coming. At some point, they had acquired PillPack about two years ago, uh, and we're working through the process of what it, look, what it might look like for a full-on Amazon uh, delivery option, and it is now here. Uh, and it seems like it has some pretty competitive offerings to um, other traditional pharmacies. And what I'm most interested in is the is that they're asking people to not pay with their insurance and instead are trying to give them better rates and discounts uh, just through being a prime member than you would get from your ins- from your insurance if you were to buy uh, medication, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, it, it's, it is um, uh, an interesting attempt to do a runaround of a lot of the complexities of the American healthcare system, honestly. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, the surprising thing to me, like, when I saw that, I was like, oh, they're just, you know, providing their own generic medications at a discount to prime members, like that makes sense. But it it is not just uh, generic, it also includes brand name uh, medications that are discounted for prime members if you don't use your insurance. So Mm -hmm. it seems like what they're the, the, the play here is that they are trying to reduce the overhead of having to you know, go through the insurance billing hassle. Um, and in exchange for that, they are passing that that savings on in as a, in a dollar amounts to to the consumer. Um, I think it'll, you know, TBD, how many people will see competitive rates, uh, you know, outside of mm-hmm. going around their insurance. Um, but the other interesting thing is that it's they're extending these benefits outside of Amazon pharmacy, which obviously makes sense if you have maintenance medications that you're taking constantly. But if you just need antibiotics or something, you don't necessarily want to wait, you know, two days even to get it from Amazon. So um, if you if you need something more immediately, they also will let you use a prime discount card with 50,000 pharmacies across the country, including CVS, Walmart, Rite Aid, Walgreens. So they're, they're actually, uh, you know, working with those, those same uh, pharmacies that they are competing mm-hmm. with a little bit. Um, to sort of get this discount program in place. And that makes me think that uh, we, you know, 
regardless of the competition for these, you know, these customers, I think there is an, an interesting angle here that Amazon could be using their heft and entering the market to be driving change along with all of these other pharmacies that mm-hmm. they, you know, theoretically are competing with, but driving change uh, that would benefit consumers, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and for, you know, our power users that shop at Amazon, you can now get your groceries, your medication, your packages. Uh, it truly is becoming the everything store, which, yep. as we know, is the goal um, for Amazon. And our last bit of news comes from the metaverse. Little Nas X, the artist behind Old Town Road, uh, did a concert in Roblox over the weekend that was attended 33 million times. Uh, so this was across four different shows over two days. And to me, this doesn't really come as a surprise from Little Nas X, seeing as he actually launched his first hit on TikTok. Uh, it seems like he's very tied into these new and emerging platforms as a way to uh, launch and support his music. Yeah, I think this is uh, a good showing for uh, for Roblox. Uh the it, it, the most comparable thing was uh, is the Travis Scott concert in Fortnite um, from earlier this year, which had about forty five million across all of their performances. Uh, but you know, thirty three is nothing to slouch at, and uh, it you know Roblox has a very I think different audience from uh, Fortnite. It is tends to be younger, um, and uh, you know I think they're they're pushing in the same direction uh, as Fortnite in terms of uh, these these virtual events. Um, and uh, you know it's a, it's a ma- it's a big showing. Roblox is probably one of the the lesser talked about uh, metaverse platforms. We talk a lot about Fortnite because their audience overlaps with a lot of the audiences we're talking about more often than not. Um, but Roblox is uh, the uh, the most popular with uh, with younger teens, uh, and it in in the U.S. they have uh, about half of U.S. Uh, kids and teens under sixteen are now playing Roblox. Um, so if you're a musician who's trying to appeal to so, you know those those age groups, this is a, a logical place to be. This is just, you know, another step on the road to uh, virtual events and then eventually past virtual events into even more uh, social time spent in these virtual spaces. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and with that, that is going to wrap up this week's news. Uh, and we're going to transition to our main conversation with David Rosenthal to talk about the future of startups. All right, listeners, and uh, welcome to this week's main conversation. Uh, this week is going to be a little bit different than previous conversations as we're going to be talking about the future of startups. Uh, so what does exactly that mean? Well, at the lab and me personally, I spent a lot of my time looking at startups, uh, where they're building, you know, who's investing in them as really as an indicator of uh, innovation and where consumer attention is shifting. Uh, and so this is kind of one of those you know, lenses that we use at the lab just to help guide our overall strategy uh, and to really help our brands innovate. Uh, and today, we're going to be talking with, uh, I would say, an expert in the space uh, to help us break down you know, really the, the startup landscape over these past eight months and you know, COVID's impact on it. And so without further ado, I would love to introduce David Rosenthal, uh, longtime investor and co-host of Acquired to the show. So David, welcome to Floor 9. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited. You know, as a longtime listener of Acquired, it's like a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> it's always great. The two things I love the most are podcasting and investing startups. So this is going to be a blast. 
Yeah, it's going to be awesome. So just to kick this thing off, um, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, your career, uh, and just all the work that you've been doing with you know startups investing? Yeah, yeah, sure, of course. Um, let's see. So I started my career uh, in New York as an investment banker right out of college. I did mm-hmm. um, was a telecom media technology investment banker at uh, at UBS. Then I got into venture. Uh, so I moved to Seattle and I joined a venture firm called Madrona Venture Group. They're the largest VC in Seattle. Um, they were the first investors in Amazon, which really put them on the map a long time ago. Good always used to always used to joke that we're still looking for <laughs> that uh, that next one. Uh, may never find it, but they've done incredibly well. Yep. Fantastic investors. They're investors in Snowflake, which of course has been enormous now recently among yep. many other great companies. So I spent... Uh, seven years in total there, really went through the whole apprenticeship program as a as a venture investor, started as an associate, spent my summer in business school interning at Meritech Capital. A lot of folks don't know Meritech. Uh, they're kind of... I would say, I haven't heard of them before. Yeah, they're, they're sort of intentionally under the radar screen, but uh, they're one of, if not the very best sort of growth investor out there, sort of late stage venture, think, okay. you know, anywhere from Series C to pre-IPO, uh, they were one of the original funds, one of the very first funds in Silicon Valley that popped up to start doing these sort of pre-IPO rounds. After the days, you know, back in the 90s, it used to be startups raised <laughs> a rent around and then 12 months later, they were going public. <laughs> yeah, it's changed days. a little bit. <laughs> it's changed a little bit. Um, and now I, I mostly invest on my own as an angel investor and advisor to startups. But I've seen everything from, you know, the incubator days to classic seed series a yep. uh to growth rounds and uh um things have changed a lot <laughs> yeah so um overqualified uh i feel like <laughs> is um is is a summary there so like that's fantastic and that's you know a pretty uh interesting route that you've had you know kind of bouncing around uh, all different parts of the startup e- ecosystem and so uh, i'm super excited to have you on obviously and uh, just dive into this conversation so first up i think the one question uh that i want to really just like level set the conversation with is with the pandemic, how has, I would say, startup investing changed? Have we seen a pullback over these past eight months? Um, you know, is it limited to certain like rounds? Like, are we seeing later stage rounds become more interesting for companies uh, or, you know, um, uh, funds to invest in? Like, what have you just seen over these past eight months when it comes to just like COVID's impact on startup investing? Yeah, it's been a wild roller coaster uh, that. I could not have predicted. I mean, the end state where we are now is this is, you know, I've now been uh, in venture investing professionally for over 10 years. And Mm -hmm. this is the hottest, most go-go market for venture investing at almost every stage. Some are hotter than others right now. We can talk Mm -hmm. about that, that I have ever seen <laughs> so uh, what, like so i guess what what do you mean by 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 hotness because i would say uh, our audience have no, has no idea like what that means is that just like there's a lot of people bidding to get into certain rounds or there's a lot more yeah. supply like startups I, I would say it, up? every degree of the chain uh, companies okay. being started uh fundraising rounds uh being being raised by those companies mm-hmm. at large dollar amounts at high valuations <laughs> uh and uh, and then for venture firms themselves also raising their own funds, there's mm-hmm. just an incredible, there already has been an incredible amount of capital that has come into the venture asset class over yep. the last 10, 15 years. But if anything, I thought at the beginning of the pandemic and a lot of folks thought, oh no, this is going to be bad. This is going to be a negative shock to the system. Yep. Capital's going to dry up. 
it has been the opposite. There has been even more coming in, and we can talk about why that's been, but uh, it's been crazy. Why do you think that is? Because I agree with you. My initial read on the scenario, just like media dollars and budgets being pulled back, is the same thing would happen from venture because businesses needed to support their employees. They needed to make you know their their projected sales goals or revenue margins, whatever it might be. So what do you think is causing essentially like a surplus or a boom? In, yeah. Uh, well, I think, it's, I, I think it's two, um, two factors, uh, both of which were potentially foreseeable at the start of the pandemic, if you thought about it, but were, <laughs> were hard to see. Uh, mm-hmm. One is that I think the, the biggest thing, just from a very macro perspective, that's caused the um, I don't want to say inflation of a bubble because I don't know that it is a bubble, <laughs> but the inflation of venture over the last 10 years has been interest rates and central banks taking interest rates down to basically zero. And, mm-hmm. you know, you would ask like, well, what does that have to do with venture investing? What it means is that for LPs, for the actual limited partners, the, the dollars of the investors that go into venture funds, so these are university endowments, these are foundations, these are pension funds, large pools of capital that are looking to invest and grow those uh their their capital under management um there hasn't been a good alternative for growth except something like venture or growth stocks and mm-hmm. the growth equities in the public markets because fixed income and relatively safer or safer or less riskier investments across the spectrum of things they can invest in the yields on that have gone to zero or negative in terms of real terms and so if you're you know say I don't know the uh, CalPERS, the California uh, State Employee Pension uh, um, uh, Pension Fund, and you need to grow your assets. You need to grow your pension fund in order to pay out pensions to employees. If you want growth, there's no place else to look except for startups, technology companies, and so that's caused both people who already were existing investors in the venture asset class to put more dollars in. And people who historically have not been investing in the asset class to move in and come in either as LPs and funds or to start investing directly. Uh, and so bring this back to COVID, um, at the beginning of COVID, everybody thought this is going to spark more conservatism. People are going to pull back from venture. It's been the opposite because governments continued to lower rates <laughs> <laughs> and continued to inject money into economies. And so as a result, people have just kind of thrown their hands up and said, all right, well, I guess I'm going to buy growth stocks and invest in venture. Um, and then it, so I'd say that's one factor. And then on the other side um, has been company creation. Uh, all companies that were, you know, uh, existing before the pandemic, some obviously benefited hugely, like Zoom, Amazon, and you know plenty of other uh, older non-technology businesses saw some tailwinds as well. But lots, lots have seen plenty of headwinds, and there's been lots of carnage in the economy. I think there's been a view that um, this is such a sea change for the economy going forward that it's new firms that are going to get started that are started with these assumptions baked into them that are going to serve. Companies like I saw you guys had Phil Libin from mm-hmm on the show. Uh, you know, that's a company that pre-pandemic sure would have been interesting. Post-pandemic, when they started, it's like, no, this is a necessity. And so people have realized, okay, now is the time to actually go fund all these new companies that are going to get started. When you look at that landscape and like the priorities for like investment, like are there any, I guess, trends or 
um, new areas of growth that you're actively like looking in to be like, this is going to redefine the standard of investments. Cause to your point, um, I, I think co-viewing is a great example of this. Co-viewing has been a thing that has been in development on the side that we at the lab look at as something that is going to be very important for the future of viewing and when streaming becomes even more of a you know primary vehicle in which people access content. And that was all pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic, there is like no way any streaming service will not have some sort of co-viewing experience because people want to watch together uh, at the same time. So I am just curious to like, just to hear from you, like what are some of those areas that you're just seeing starting to pop uh, or trends that are out there that, you know, are going to redefine what the startup investing landscape is going to look like uh, going forward. Yeah, there's, um, well, I could talk about some big trends and, and then maybe some, some micro examples for the tech industry specifically. One very, very salient uh, outcome of that or consequence of that is that remote work is here to stay even mm-hmm. post pandemic companies, both existing companies and especially new startups that were started. They're now they've realized that this is such a boon for them. You can recruit software developers. You can re- recruit product managers. You can recruit designers, data scientists all around the world instead mm-hmm. of just in San Francisco or just in New York or just in Seattle, wherever you happen to be located. So, okay, this is going to change particularly the tech industry's HR model forever well, yep. given that that's happened, you now need a new paradigm for team building for companies, right? Like it yep. used to be at these companies, there was lots of, you know, like, hey, uh, let's all go do a team building event. HR would say, you product team, which might include five engineers, a product manager, a designer, maybe some data scientists. Um, here's a company credit card. And once a month, you guys go out like, go go-karting, go to a bar, go to a restaurant, go do something, go spend time together and do team building. And then you'd be doing physical offsites, you know, maybe more regularly. Well, that's not going to happen in the same ways anymore. So a company I'm actually an angel investor in up in Seattle called Mystery, uh, they've started offering remote team building events as a service to companies. Uh, and it's cool. taken off like wildfire because you know, in the old days, you would just hand hand the credit card, like I was saying to a team. Now yep. you're not going to say, hey, you team leader, um, how about you organize an awesome Zoom event for <laughs> your team and run it and have it not suck and have everybody hate it? Like that's never right. going to happen. <laughs> so now Mysteries popped up and it's this service that can do this for teams. So they've got uh, company-wide at Amazon, at Apple, at Microsoft, lots of teams using this. Um, I think that's here to stay. So anything kind of in that category, that's one big trend um what about like social impact do you see that becoming a category where we're going to start to see more investment obviously you know this year the whole idea of like global warming is that has taken hold as a very mainstream conversation it is a top priority for you know um scientists and it's like the global economy uh and i wonder if that is going to be like a trend or an environment where we're start, we're, we're going to start to see more talent go towards of maybe solving like these real big challenges that'll impact like the globe versus maybe going to work for like a Facebook. Yeah, totally. I I would say this, this is another big trend that's happening, um, in entrepreneurship and it's, uh, you know, the probably 15 years ago or so now there was a big boom in venture and startups around clean tech, uh, and green investing. Um, and that didn't actually, end too well uh really it didn't work out there were lots of companies that got funded now what that uh what that boom was about was like infrastructure type stuff new Mm -hmm. types of 
energy funding big capital intensive projects. And I think what the venture industry learned and the reason why a lot of those companies didn't work was that level of infrastructure is so capital intensive that that should really be the realm of like governments and (laughs) especially, uh, but also, you know, big utilities, energy companies and the like, uh, that is, you're talking billions of dollars of capital and infrastructure build out. That's not what venture capital is really equipped to do. Yeah. Unless Um, you're at the vision fund where it's like, they're just throwing billion dollar investments. (laughs) Like it's nothing. Indeed. Even then it might not be enough capital. Um, so I think what's different this time is you're seeing a lot more software companies being built around this. And this is a consequence of, you know, the whole Mark Andreessen now old, uh, uh, I think it was a Wall Street Journal op-ed about software is eating in the world that's become pervasive. So uh, a friend of mine, for instance, started a company uh, that is a new a reinsurance company for fire insurance uh, in uh, in California. Uh, now, with climate change and uh, it's been in the headlines. The amount of you know fire season in California has gotten longer. It's gotten more frequent, uh, and it's been terrible. There's been terrible devastation from the wildfires out here. Um, you know, one approach to that could be like, well, okay, we need new technologies to prevent fire or build a you know build infrastructure, all that. Um, not that that's not important and necessary. This approach, though, is is my friends have said, hey, we the current insurance industry isn't set up to deal with this like their models that they're using assume a devastating fire season once every like 100 years in california <laughs> instead it's happening once every two years uh and so we can retrain these models using artificial intelligence and ml and all of the great advances that have come from the tech industry we can turn that in on insurance and then we can more accurately price these policies like right now you can't even really get fire insurance anymore in california well that's horrible we can price it appropriately. We can make it available again. And then that can start to change things with software. That's the type of thing that the venture capital community is super well-equipped to fund. That's fascinating. Because, you know, I look at that as really, you know, if we kind of kind of pull back to our brands, like looking at your product and seeing maybe from like a climate perspective, like if you can build a product that is suitable for that like environment. Cause for example, we have some insurance brands. Um, I'm not sure if they are thinking about getting into fire insurance. Um, but that would be, I think a good in like way to expand their portfolio, uh, to suit a need for modern, for modern times. Um, so if anybody from the team is listening, you yeah. have a free idea or, uh, go, uh, go talk to David. Go talk can, to, uh, you... Kettle is the name of yeah, the company. Kettle. Go talk um, to them. Um, that's fantastic. And I think one of the biggest challenges for, for brands of, you know, like that, that we work with has always been this idea of, you know, building versus buying. Uh, you know, there are two different approaches, you know, to kind of drive innovation through it, through like your business. And I am curious to know from you, because you have now spent years analyzing what makes a successful acquisition on the acquired podcast. What does it take for an acquisition to, to be successful, especially within a larger uh, organization that might not be as, you know, equipped or culturally relevant, than, say, <laughs> like, you know, like a, a startup is? No, uh, I would say, oh, well, it's a fantastic question. And, um, that was the original impetus for Ben and I starting the Acquired podcast was to mm-hmm. try and understand that. And of course, Acquired over time has morphed into you know IPOs, and now we just tell the stories of great companies. But this is always at the heart of it. Um, you know, I think it's um, it's very easy to point to uh, lots of examples of acquisitions that 
uh, failed to live up to the hype or disappointed. And, yep. um, you know, there've been studies out there by like McKinsey and others that, you know, some very high percentage, I don't know, 70, 80% percent of M&A out there destroys value. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty I, high percentage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, uh, so point being, it's easy to throw stones, but when it works, it works incredibly well. And that's what mm-hmm. we've seen on the podcast. And, and I would say it roughly, um, there are two, um, main genres of acquisitions working well. Uh, not that there aren't plenty of other ways to do it or exceptions, but, um, the two big buckets that we find are either one where you're buying a, a bigger company is buying a high growth, smaller company that is on its own, a very viable business with a large TAM total addressable market that it is only very minutely penetrated in thus far. And the resources, mostly the capital resources uh, of the bigger company that it can lend to the smaller company can help accelerate the penetration of that TAM. Uh, And the perfect example of this is Instagram, you know, Facebook buying Instagram uh, and just everything that's happened since, I mean, a billion dollars for Instagram, which was a crazy amount to pay at the time, you know, by analyst estimates. Now, Instagram is probably worth at least $150 billion within Facebook, if not more like 200 plus. Um, the key to those types of acquisitions is don't mess up the magic, (laughs) leave (laughs) the business, the product, especially the product alone like if it's working and it's already getting a high rate of adoption don't try and impose anything on it like the magic Mm -hmm. is happening instead what you want to do is help grow the business and again part of that is like i said often just like making capital resources available that Mm -hmm. the the smaller company wouldn't have otherwise part of it too in the facebook instagram case is is perfect of plugging in revenue infrastructure into the company. So Facebook had built this incredible ad, uh, you know, both delivery platform, but, but also buying platform Mm -hmm. and plugging Instagram into that meant Instagram didn't have to build that meant years of acceleration, uh, for the company. Um, and that was great. So I would say that's all sort of one bucket. The other bucket of acquisitions that we've seen work incredibly well is the complete opposite of that where you're buying a company that is a has a a point technology or um, component uh, of a larger system within the buyer and in that case you want to integrate it and adopt that technology and it's a superior component or technology versus what you have in-house you want to integrate that as deeply as possible as quickly as possible and some of those acquisitions can be just as valuable. I mean, the biggest one we were joking about <laughs> pre-show uh, when we before we hit record uh, is Apple Silicon within Apple. You know the the chips that Apple's making. You know with their iPhone and iPad chips, the A series chips, and now the M series chips in the MacBook. That was an acquisition. They acquired a company called PA Semi for I think about three hundred million dollars uh, a little over ten years ago. Um, like not a lot of money. And it's that team and that ARM-based technology, those chip designs from that company that are now probably, maybe arguably the strongest differentiation of Apple products, period, responsible for many, many billions of dollars of revenue. 
I think I think that's one thing a lot of people don't understand about Apple is that they buy a lot of companies. They do. And they're very good at it. Um, one, they're good at not telling people about it because it's very locked up. Um, but they're very good at finding companies, buying companies, and integrating them into uh, their business. So that way they can, you know, essentially take advantage of it very strategically. Yeah. I mean, most people have never heard of PA Semi uh, and Apple prefers it that way. (laughs) But yes, it was an acquisition and all of the Apple Silicon innovation has come from that. Yeah. I think that's something that like is largely more like more companies can maybe like like learn from or think about is that, you know, it's a real skill set to identify, buy, and then integrate um, companies in certain ways to make them work for you. Because I think in, at least from our side of the business, we read the headlines and that's really about all we get. You know, we, we have the TechCrunch article, we have the Verge article, maybe a podcast about it, but we don't really get to the, you know, like the inside look into really, you know, how are they threading these companies together, if at all, right? Yeah. It could be essentially, it's just left alone and it's just rebranded as Apple and, you know, they come together, you know, when they need to. And I think in those cases, particularly with technology acquisitions like that, um, the re- identifying what the real critical asset is being clear eyed about that and making sure it succeeds Mm -hmm. is important. And most of these technology companies, it's the people. So if you look at the people, I haven't looked at LinkedIn recently, but all of the people within PA semi, at least all the key people, (laughs) Apple made sure to retain them. If they had just bought PA semi and then all these incredible chip designers had left, it wouldn't have gotten them much. Um, And so I think that's something that a lot of tech companies have really figured out when it's the people who are important, yeah, you have to buy the company, but then you also have to be prepared to spend a lot of money in salary and retention and bonuses mm-hmm. for the folks who you're buying if they are the key assets. And uh, all of the big tech companies are not afraid to do that. Fantastic. Well, David, to to end this conversation, it has been such a pleasure. Um, do you have any advice for for companies that are looking to invest in innovation? Um, anything else, you know, whether that's build, whether that's buy, whether that's just like getting the right people in place, a framework, a mindset, I mean, whatever you have. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, I think one of the greatest things about Silicon Valley, <laughs> there are plenty of bad things too, but one of the best <laughs> things is it is a very open place. Uh, and mm-hmm. these days, especially post COVID, uh, post pandemic Silicon Valley is a mindset, uh, as much as it is, as it is a place, uh, and, uh, exists on the internet as much as, it, as much as it does in Northern California. Uh, and so I think the biggest thing is just get in involved, steep yourself in it. Um, mm-hmm. listen to podcasts. There's so many great technology podcasts out there. Uh, watch YouTube, you know, Andreessen puts all of their content from the Andreessen summit, the A16Z summit out there. It, it's not hard to learn, um, from, from all the people doing this about what's going mm-hmm. on. So I would say that's the the biggest thing is just steep yourself in it. Um, and, and then, you know, in terms of investing and, and being part of the ecosystem or acquiring companies, um, I I would suggest similarly get involved, be open. Uh, Silicon Valley also operates on a principle of um, helpfulness and reciprocity. There's there's unlike uh, sort of you know my days in New York and the New York ecosystem. <laughs> there's a belief here that uh, doing something, introducing to somebody something to someone, helping somebody make a sale, making a connection, making an introduction, mm-hmm. uh, you're always paying it forward. And so you don't expect anything in return right away. You still expect something in return. You (laughs) just play the long game. (laughs) And, uh, and so I think that's the biggest mistake that a lot of outsiders make when they come into the industry here is they, 
uh, they're not used to playing that long game. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you come to to the valley with that mindset, that helps. So whether that's investing, you know, not to invest in a company and expect uh, expect to get your dollars back the next year, Um, you know, or to expect to get any dollars back from that company at all. This is actually a big mindset shift. I think even that sometimes people within Silicon Valley have a hard time realizing it's like losing money is, is part of making money here. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. uh, when the way startups work is a very small number of them return a very large number of dollars and a lot of them return zero dollars. So, when you're investing and you lose your money, that's actually fine because on the ones where you make money, you're going to make so many hundreds of times more than what you invested. It'll make up for all the losers. Now, the consequence of that is that it's the relationships that matter because the people who started the losers might start tomorrow's winners. (laughs) And so that's how this whole long-term game plays out. Yeah, it's fascinating. I I always look at it from like a frame of media is like a a a test and learn environment where you have like you like you give yourself permission to fail. Yeah. Whether like whatever it, whatever it might be, I think you know it's okay if the maybe like the KPI doesn't hit what you wanted or like the test goes in another direction. It's like you've learned, you've iterated, and you have like like continue to move on. And it's like that's the the doing and trying. I think is what's going to make that long term success of where you maybe you, like you try three companies and the fourth one is like ah that's the the marketing tool or the media platform or the investment or whatever that is like that we've been looking for and we've refined it over these past three failures to really understand what we're trying to do and those like limitations. Uh, cause I think a lot of time it's just learning and, um, you know, putting yourself out there is what makes it all, um, you know, super successful. hundred percent. So when you look at corporate investment, how do you see that changing or is there a, a strategy or a playbook that, you know, a lot of our brands might want to think about uh, if they have corporate venture arms uh, to kind of, you know, improve their their returns or they're just like the success they see uh, through that corporate venture arm. It's a good question. And uh, particularly on the investing side, Silicon Valley, like we were saying, works at its best when everybody is very long-term focused mm-hmm. uh, and willing to lose money, willing to play the multi-turn game. And not that the people within corporate venture don't want to do that too. The problem with corporate venture when you invest in early stage companies is you often get a misalignment versus the interests of the company itself, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, the corporation itself. Um, it can be hard culturally and financially within a company to carve off this unit and say like, hey, we're going to do this unrelated stuff that's going to be in a very long time horizon. And yeah, we'll probably lose a lot of money. (laughs) Um, So I I tend in general, when corporates invest, there there are counterexamples to this, of course, but in general, when corporates invest at the early stages of a startup, those problems get more exacerbated. I I think Mm -hmm. it's much better and you see much more success when corporates invest later in growth rounds of companies that are already already established already operating mm-hmm. one because it's going to be uh less um less risky <laughs> less likely yep. to lose money two closer time to liquidity and to and to exits and returns but also three probably most important is that the best relationships that happen there are when there's a business relationship between the startup you're investing in and the corporate itself and with early stage startups, even if you do put a business relationship in place, it's like 
the really early companies are not ready to like absorb <laughs> a big contract with with right. a corporate yet. But when you have a company that's five years old or so already doing 50 million in revenue, uh, they have the infrastructure to actually do make that relationship right. work right. So I think I think it makes sense to me that something like what you've seen with Comcast, where it's going to become more with fully within corp dev probably going to be deploying fewer bigger checks that makes a lot more sense to me so david with that thank you so much for coming on floor nine how can our listeners get in touch with you get anything else to plug <laughs> well the best way is uh listen to the acquired podcast there you go uh, acquired our website is acquired.fm or you can find us just by searching acquired and any podcast player and we have well over 100 episodes of case studies on these companies and how they grew um and then if you really want to get involved uh we have a slack community um that you can join uh just go to our website there's a button to join the slack community there and we have uh we have about 5500 people that are uh, including yourself scout yeah i'm in it i'm the number one advocate (laughs) (laughs) it's fantastic uh, it's a great place to interact with other folks in the in the silicon valley ecosystem Listeners, that is going to wrap up this week's episode of Floor 9. As always, you can find myself and Adam on Twitter. I am at T-I-P-P-I-E-R, and Adam is at Adam J. Simon. And if you have two to three minutes, we'd greatly appreciate uh, you filling out a review for us on Apple Podcasts. So thank you, and we'll talk to you all next week. Bye.